Welcome to another episode of Athens and Jerusalem. Let's begin where we can't escape. Let's begin with Logos. Now I would say that this openness, this being in the world, this referring to the world, to objects in the world, what I would like to call self-transcendence, this is disappearing as soon as you project a human being into a lower dimension than its own dimension. Point of the V goes up to the, to the nuclear explosion that created it. Uh, now, tell me this, Dr. Oppenheimer. Uh, do you ever become frightened at what you're finding out here in this area that can't be measured in either time or space? I, you see, that's a real point. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts. Open up your hearts to Athens and Jerusalem. The infants of our culture, united, independent, polarized, and even bloody. Athens, the cradle of wisdom and rationality. Jerusalem, the cradle of faith and spirituality. In this podcast, we look at reunion. Could reason be more than modern secular skepticism? And could spirituality be more than belief? Welcome to another episode of Athens and Jerusalem. To me, together with me, as normal, is Stephen Phelps and Cameron Namdar. My name is Knut Ove Esse. We we ended the last episode by talking about different dimension in man, but we have to return a little to Ibn Rush and his ideas. Last time we talked not only about different dimension in man, but also different dimension of truth. And we talk about limitation between the, uh, our world and like a divine world. This time we, I tried to talk more about this, of the divine dimension of reality. And uh, I was talking about that we could try to to um, speak about this uh, divine reality by using metaphors. And Stephen, you talked about narratives and parables. So that, I'm just wondering, should, should we start there? Should we? Uh, could you say a little bit more about narrative, Stephen? How, how to explain this divine reality? Mm. Yeah, that's a, a great starting point for this. Would be would be the the metaphor that probably most of us are familiar with, which is the parable of the of Plato's cave, which gives us a clear this intuitive idea of of the difference between the world that we experience, the shadows on the wall of the cave, which is observable. We can find you know objective agreement about what is and what isn't. It's measurable, it's quantifiable, all of those things that um that exist in what we would today call the realm of science you know, of, of, of scientific observation or, or po- possible scientific observation and what plato conjectured was that everything that we observe this the quantitative reality of things is metaphorically the shadow cast by something behind something greater something above um, what what are alternatively called the forms or the ideas. And one of the questions, uh, this begs many questions, and even Plato during his time took up some of these questions and some of the challenges that can result from this way of thinking about the world, you know, among which is, well, what what are, what are the rules governing that world above? Uh, we could call it the divine world as as um as you suggest, there are many words that, that we could use to, to describe that, what is above that divided line. But one of the questions that it begs is, are the, are the rules the same above as they are below? The, the rules for how we determine what is real and what is not. When we look, for example, at the project of, of Ibn Rushd and, uh, and others in this school, and and look at it in in terms of this question of the divided line it's almost as though what ibn rushd was doing 
which was trying to reconcile the 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 language of revelation of the Quran with the rational Greek thought, particularly exemplified by Aristotle, but also with some some Plato snuck in there as well. Uh, could we say, and I'll throw this out there, could we say that Ibn Rushd's project was in a way doomed to failure from the beginning because he wanted to apply the same sorts of logical rules, the kind of mathematical precision in thinking uh, to divine scripture as the Greek philosophers did to their philosophy? Is it, but are we talking about the same kind of thing? You know, is the language of revelation, does it convey content, knowledge, structure in the same way that that the realities of the natural world do? And uh, I think Joseph Campbell gives a, a, a one way of thinking about the, the nature of this divided line uh, in his, uh, in I think this is in the Power of Myth series. He talks about how one can mistake poetry for prose. And again, this is something we would all have a pretty good intuition about that, okay, you, these are both, poetry and prose are both made of words, but but prose uses words in a particular way that we can all understand that certain nouns and verbs describe entities in a, in a kind of logical way that, that we all have objective agreement about. Whereas poetry, although it's using the same words, is conveying something different. And a word in poetry may actually not mean anything like the dictionary definition of that word. And, and the rules for how you express something in poetry in a way are different from the rules for how you express something in prose. Could Ibn Rushd's project be a big case of, of mistaking poetry for prose? He, he's taking this language of the Quran and he's saying, let's interpret this as though it were philosophy. And what comes out of that? Uh, was the project a success or a failure? And when Thomas Aquinas and others, you know, up, up until the current day, when they tried to take something as sublime as these sacred scriptures of the great religious traditions and try to read them out for their knowledge content, try to read them out for their philosophical content, is is this project doomed doomed to failure? I think that's that's interesting. And if I should try to defend um, Ibn Rush, I think that's the the idea is that the our ability to think logical is not coming from the empirical world, the, the physical world, but it actually comes from the divine world. So then uh, our logical ability or, uh, or uh, our ability to think logical about the divine reality or the, what, what is ab above the line, it, it, it has to be the ability to 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 actually think about divinity that's the argument i think they will they will uh, or plato uh, would have uh, stated i don't know if if some of you have have uh, because I, I know you steve you, you think that maybe maybe we should if if you if if you think that we should have different rules I think that's a very that's a very interesting thought. And then what what should we expel? What should we? Uh, and I ask if could it be that we we should expel this idea about what is in Latin called tertium dator? I mean, uh, this possibility of of something um, being two things at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, a that that's a, a great sort of way to try to configure this this problem because it I don't think the 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 primary distinction between this below the line and above the line you know talking about the the, the world below the physical world versus the realm of ideas or, or or the spiritual world is the same as the difference between thinking logically and thinking illogically it's not that you're not a logical thinker or that you're not following some sort of reason or or, or even a, a rational project when you are discussing, experiencing, traversing, you know, that realm above the line. It's just that you're starting from different premises. And of course, the premises that you start with very much determine, you know, what follows. And among the, the different premises, I think, in this 
realm above the dotted line, uh, so to speak, is you let go of this idea that you mentioned, uh, which can be translated, I believe, as tertium non datur, which I think, if I'm if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is basically the idea of what has been called Aristotle's law of the excluded middle, the idea that which is so intuitive to us from our experience in the world of quantity, the realm of quantity that, and, and of entities, that a proposition is either true or false. And so much follows from that, so much useful stuff follows from that initial premise that this is how the world works. Something is either true or false. Not both and not neither, but one or the other. And if you let go of that initial premise, all sorts of different kinds of things follow, which may seem illogical, but they're just beginning from that from that different premise. And the strange and, and weird thing and amazing thing is that we now know that the world below, the realm of quantity, the physical world also does not fundamentally follow that law, that, that premise. Uh, we now know that it's not a law, but that premise of the... Uh, of, of, of Aristotle's law of the excluded middle. How do we know that? Because when we get to the quantum realm, this is a realm which cannot be divided into thises and thats in such with such crystalline Cartesian clarity as we thought the world could be divided into uh, prior to the, the discovery of, of quantum mechanics. We now know that fundamentally the world is such that it exists in a kind of realm of, let's call it mathematical potentiality, which is described by wave functions. And what is the reality of a wave function? That's a, a debatable thing philosophically. It's when an observation is made that the wave function shows its usefulness, which is the ability to tell us the probability of measuring certain things at certain points in space and time. But but the fact that that's how the universe works at a kind of ground level means that this law of the excluded middle is uh, is at best a good approximation at certain at certain levels of reality, but it breaks down at other levels of reality. Could, so could the, just... so we're crossing the, this line then. You know, the, what we thought was this sort of line that we can draw a bright, clear division between say, the spiritual and the material, or the realm of forms and the realm of, of matter, it's, it's, it's not quite as clear as we, as we might have thought it was. Could, could I just, just a question, because I, I, I think I've heard that they would say that we are, uh, reality is both waves and particles at the same time. Could that be like a, like a simple way of saying it? Well, it's neither, and, and it, it's neither until you observe it, and then it's either one or the other. I, the moment you you force uh, an experiment to to observe it, you are wrenching it out of this realm of potentiality, and it becomes actuality. And depending on how you set up the experiment, the fundamental layer of, of reality, the, the realm of what we might call particles, may actually look like a wave. Or it may look like a particle, but it's never going to look like both at the same time. It's going to look like one or the other. It's somehow prior to the act of observation, it exists in this realm of potentiality where it's both and neither. But, it's a could, very strange thing because it, it suggests that the, the act of observation is somehow has a metaphysical priority, uh, that it's somehow in the mix. It's it's difficult to 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 imagine how we can describe reality in in the way that we did, you know, during the time of Newton and before, and in the sort of Newtonian framework where everything exists, everything has a place, everything has a velocity, you know, a, a position, and so forth. It just doesn't seem to be the case that that's actually how the reality work. Re reality is, it it is insofar as it is observed. I I just wanted to propose an example i don't know if, if this you know if we could use this uh apply this uh to, to the question that we're discussing something that comes to my mind is uh music and uh 
if you, you know, when, when you listen, let's say you listen to box music. Now, you can actually analyze box music in terms of uh, the sound wavelengths. You can, uh, I think, even produce certain mathematical patterns in it. So that's one way of approaching box music. But someone who is totally unknowledgeable about either of those things, like I remember the first time I came in contact with classical music as a as a teenager, I was totally like mesmerized by it. It was it was a it was definitely a metaphysical experience for me. It was that beauty and majesty of that music that somehow totally impressed my mind and my soul, uh, which are probably pretty much the same thing. So, uh, and and I, I, I would not, I was not able to analyze it in any way, but the experience was very, very real. And I, I wonder whether, whether we have these, um, so to say different, as you said uh, in the beginning, Knitova, different dimensions of uh, reality, which are, which are complementary, in the sense that that the uh, what we term the mystical is not irrational; it's super rational. So just like I think music is not uh, non-mathematical or non-physical; it's it's super uh, mathematical or super physical. I don't know if that makes sense. That's such a, a beautiful analogy because um, the the realm of the notes, you know, the physical sound waves, the spaces and pauses in between the notes, all of that is the realm of of quantity. That's like the world below. But the realm of experiencing that same thing as music is the is that realm above. You know, music is saying something. It's it's heading towards a conclusion. It's it exhibits a level of purpose. Of telos to use, you know, to 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 bring it from the Aristotle's cat, uh, one of Aristotle's four categories. It exists that telos, which is which is not visible when you, and and perceptible when you try to analyze music at the level of the notes. You can also think of of the same, of the the same interesting fact about the universe that um, that purpose somehow emerges when. From the same system, you can look at a system as non-purposive, or you can look at a system as purposive, depending on how you look at it. Um, as we know, Aristotle's four, four causes, he tries to describe all phenomena in terms of what it's made out of, the shape or form that it has, and then its efficient cause and its final cause, You know, the thing that's, let's say, immediately pushing on it, and the thing that it wants to become. And in terms of how modern science thinks about the world, it thinks about the world entirely in terms of efficient causes. You know, the movement of atoms ultimately is determined by forces exerted upon those atoms, and those forces can be described using certain equations. But a really interesting pre-quantum mechanics, pre-general you know, relativity, pre-20th century physics insight that emerged is that you can also describe these same physical laws, which which are in the realm of efficient causes. You can describe the same physics in a mathematical language, which is more akin to Aristotle's telos, to the to the to purpose. And and I'll just throw out the phrase: it's Lagrangian mechanics. You can you can say that a, a physical system evolves because forces accelerations and so forth are acting on it that then determine what happens at the next moment in time and so forth. That's like the Newtonian framework. Or you can de you can describe the same physical system as a system that that whatever it does, wherever it goes, is going to be an extremum of an of something called an action. Usually it means it's going to minimize some quantity called an action. Why is it that the universe wants to minimize this quantity of an action? You know that it's not that it there's something that wants to do it in the, in the human sense of the word, but the way it's mathematically set up shows an equivalence between a teleological way of thinking about the physical world and and uh, a way of thinking about the world which is more like efficient cause. And I think, uh, Kamran, your 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 point about music 
is like a great example of how you can describe the same thing in terms of the physical components, or you can describe that th that thing in terms of the purpose and the and the sort of project behind it. Another another way of thinking about it is you can describe the boiling of water in terms of inputs of energy and vaporization points and entropy. And if you want to get even down to, to, the, to the level of atoms, you can talk about average kinetic energy of water molecules and, and all, all sorts of things in, in a very quantitative sense. Or you could talk about the boiling of water as I'm making a cup of tea. And it's not like one level of description excludes the other level of description. It's that one level of description is below the line, and it's talking about it as a physical process in terms of these efficient causes. And the above the line, the, the divine way of talking about it, let's say, is I'm making a cup of tea. You know, this water is boiling to, to a certain purpose. There's something, a project in mind for this purpose. And they can equivalently be described in either language. These two languages don't exclude each other. You can look at the body as a third example, as, as a collection of cells, which are like little machines that are like processing proteins and energy is coming in and out and all of the things that cells do with all their incredible complexity. Or you can talk about what emerges from the activity of all of those cells. In the case of our bodies, these trillions of cells acting together in concert, certain purposes emerge from it and the body starts doing things, it intends things, um, and it acts in, in a kind of teleological way. So somehow purpose emerges from what seems to be purposelessness, you know, the, the, the realm of forms, the realm of, of uh, you know, above that line is somehow emergent upon the realm below the line. But these two worlds are in harmony with each other. We, we don't, we don't end up with some sort of Cartesian division where there's an arbitrary, oh, this world above is like that and this world below is like that. That depending on your perspective, you can shift frames of reference and the one becomes the other. But then, in the, in the beginning, we said that uh, maybe Ibn Rush uh, had the wrong rules when he started. But that... Could it be that he actually had the the, the, the correct rules because he used Aristotle, so maybe he actually he, he uh, thought of the divine uh, part of reality uh, more in a teleological way than we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What what was? But in reading out, say, the Quran as a philosophical text that one has to harmonize, you know, against Greek thought, it's like, it's like, at, it's like if you were a physicist trying to describe a system and you're trying at the same time to describe it in a like Newtonian framework of masses and accelerations, trying to get where you're going by that description, and at the same time writing out the action and trying to minimize an action. If you tried to do both of those at the same time, you would end up with, with kind of confusion because these are two different modes of getting at the same result. You know, one of them is just, is, is more, again, teleological and the other is more in, in terms of efficient cause. But then going back to Joseph Campbell, it's like one is more like the poetry and the other is, is, is like the prose. And, and we're not saying that these are incompatible with each other. We're just saying these are like compatible, complementary frameworks for navigating the world that we that we find ourselves in. Yeah. So, that, and especially if 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 we start to read too literally, the the texts, the divine yes. texts, of course. And, and but, so much of the so much of the problems of the world, I think, derive from that. Yeah. trying to, to to read these things, to read all of this poetry as though it were prose. But all of this then begs the next question, and that is, well, if if something like the Quran is is really to be understood as a as a as a kind of poetry and not and not as a kind of prose, and to say that is not to try to reduce uh, is not to try to take anything away from it. it's it, if anything, it's it's to it's to raise it up uh, uh, to a higher level. then, how do we evaluate truth claims made in that realm? 
if the law of the excluded middle doesn't apply, you know, if you can't say, well, it's either right or wrong, we got to figure it out. If that rule doesn't apply, then how do we evaluate the truth claims of any metaphysical claim, the truth value of any metaphysical claim or any theological claim? It's almost not only do we not have direct access to it in terms of being able to observe it directly, but we don't even know what the rules are. We don't even know what the logic is at that level. Because if it doesn't follow our logical rules, it's like it's it's two problems that that compound each other. And we we, we have tried to to put uh, something in, in, when we talk about teleological. If we try to, uh, we could say that we we try now to to think teleological about the truth in different religious texts. I think that could be a way of thinking of them in a more uh, maybe maybe that would help. I, I'm not sure what the answer is. So, um, <laughs> what would happen? I'll, what would happen? I'll suggest one. I mean, the first first is not to not to say that because we can't observe it or because we don't know the rules that somehow it's less real or that it has a status that that's any less substantive than than the status of of the world that we can actually that, that we can actually measure and, and observe. William James had a, had a really great observation about this uh, and about the uh, about bringing it back to the to the Platonic forms, uh, and he says this in in um, in the varieties of of religious experience, uh, and he's talking about and he uses the word abstractions, but he's really talking about Plato's forms or ideas or this realm what we would what we may may call the the realm of the divine. He says this absolute determinability of our mind by abstractions is one of the cardinal facts in our human constitution. Polarizing and magnetizing us as they do, we turn towards them and from them. We seek them, hold them, hate them, bless them, just as if they were so many concrete beings. And beings they are, beings as real in the realm which they inhabit as the changing things of sense are in the realm of space. Plato gave so brilliant and impressive a defense of this common human feeling that the doctrine of the reality of abstract objects has been known as the Platonic theory of ideas ever since. So how do we know the reality of it then? You know, it's, let's take, let's assume that, that William James is right here and that these things are just as real as atoms and, you know, and, and particles and, and fields. We can't observe them directly, but we can perhaps observe them by their effect. Uh, and also, this then leads yeah. us to basically a kind of philosophy of pragmatism, yeah, but, I, which but, William James was also a, a great architect of. Yeah, he was. But and uh, I, I, I also think that, that he he used the word feeling. Yes, and, and I, I think that's very important to to understand that it. Logical or, or to 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 think in abstract ways is a way of feeling. Mm -hmm. it, it brings feeling into reality, into being mm -hmm. when you do. And I think that's extremely important. So feelings or that yes, that that subjective individual sense of the reality of of something is part of the of 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 our evidence then for the truth of these claims. And that's very personal, private, you know, subjective evidence. At the same time, we have ob more objective evidence, which is the collective evidence of the truth of an idea, which is, well, when this idea is implemented in the world, what does it do? Does it produce good results or bad, or bad results? Of course, this begs the question, well, what do we define as good results versus bad results? Yeah. There's never an easy answer to this. There's never a sort of, it, it, it's not going to, it's not going to get any easier. It's only going to get more difficult. But that's, I think, where, where we're left with is, well, what Jesus says in the Bible, you know, how do you tell a true prophet from a false prophet? By their fruits, ye shall know them, he says. When they ask him, how are we going to, how are we going to know what's the truth when it comes to you know the spiritual claims of future people saying, "I, you know, I claim that this is true. I have direct access to this realm above the line, and you don't. And so, follow what I say. How do you know? Well, by their fruits, you shall know them. All you can do 
The only thing you can do is look at the effect of these ideas on you personally in terms of, well, how does it make you feel? Does it change your orientation towards the world? Does it change the way you personally navigate the world? Does it expand your consciousness and appreciation of, of the world in its all its interconnectedness? And collectively, what does it do for the world? Is it a remedy for an illness? That's one way to think about the nature of, of religion is not so much as a, a prescription of divinely revealed truths, but rather as a, the prescription of a doctor who diagnoses an ailment and prescribes a remedy. Because then you have a, a means, a kind of litmus test for evaluating the truth claim of it. Does it solve the thing that it sets out to solve? You know, if the if the illness, for example, is disunity and hatred, does it produce love and unity? And if it doesn't, you know that it's not a true without any access to the to the thing in itself. All you have access to is the is that second order of effect. You, but then, really, in in the in the physical world, that's all we have anyway. It's not like we're directly observing atoms. It's not like we're directly observing any of the fundamental constituents of matter that that scientists say really exist. These are mathematical abstractions when you get down to it. And all we're ever observing, even in the physical world, are the are the are the the, the, the secondary sort of the follow-on effects of the thing in itself. We're always operating at below the the line, in other words, always operating below that line. We're always in the in the realm of of well, what are we actually observing? You know, what are the phenomena? That's what we have access to. We don't have access to the what Kant would call the noumena. That noumenal realm is just not it's not something that we have direct perception of. Okay, so but we and uh, we sh we shouldn't go uh, too far into uh, pragmatism or but uh, but of course th there is a connection between teleologic uh, thinking and pragmatism because teleological is about having purposes and thinking that something has a meaning or a, a, a final cause and of course this idea about utility is also about that something has a cause or a uh, consequence. And we could think of it also as, as something final, as a, as a final cause. Because I think we should rather go into what kind of attributes, uh, because this is Ibn Rush, uh, he, he, he started to talk about what kind of attributes is it uh, above the divine line? What kind of attribute is it that we call God, and, and mm. you 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 did say something about good, or uh, as something opposite as ha of hate, mm -hmm. and and, and uh, but is it like this? Is it is it like it, it does not hate? Is not hate part of uh, divinity? That's a, such an interesting question because. Isn't if you're going to use an analogy of the physical world to the spiritual world and say like, well, love is what binds everything together. It's you know, it's a universal gravitational force, and isn't that a beautiful metaphor for the divine love, which attracts everything towards everything else in some beautiful unity? Well, at the same time, you could always counter. Um, you have positive. You have like charges repel, and which is kind of a metaphor for hate in a way and and that's fundamental too in the physical realm you have love and, and hate are both are both there in a kind of primal sense you can't ignore the repulsion piece and just talk about the attraction piece so so what are we to do with that i mean we're touching upon like the 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 most one of the most intractable problems in philosophy which is the problem of evil and and why why is there hate and evil in the world if one supposes that the world has a telos which is defined broadly as the good which is strongly aligned with love and with unity then why would we why could we not live in a universe in which there is only love and unity and no hatred you know why is it is it a necessary thing somehow yeah. 
I guess, I mean, metaphysically, you could say, if the one is going to become many and then one again, you know, if the one is just going to remain one, it's kind of a boring reality. But And you have to start somewhere. And this is where, you know, Plotinus starts, is the one just wants to be in as many ways that it can be. And so it emanates. And it emanates in all the possible ways that it can emanate. But in doing so, the one becomes many. And then at the end of the cycle, at the end of the circle, the many become one again. But that's that's the origin of love and hate. Because love is the coming back together and the hate is the is the coming apart. Seen metaphysically, that that one becoming many is the it is the there's a repulsive force there. But it's part of the overall scheme of things. Uh, of course, it's not when you're on the ground in the world experiencing hate. It's hard to say, oh, this is a metaphysically, you know, great thing. And if I just could understand how hate is part of the circle of life, then I'm going to be okay with it. I mean, I I, I don't want to go there, but and and that's I think what makes this problem of of evil such a difficult problem to solve philosophically and morally because. You can come up with all sorts of moral or or theoretical metaphysical justifications for evil and hate and say, it's, it's, it's necessary to the world. Otherwise, we don't have an interesting world. But then that doesn't mean that on the ground in the world that we actually inhabit, we want to minimize the hate and, and maximize the love. I, we could say that, I guess, in doing so, we are aligning ourselves with the, the forward direction of the universe, which is returning to the one. I guess you could say it's as simple as that. You know, that otherwise it's a it's a symmetry between love and hate. You know, we're in a world in which well things are coming apart and things are moving together. Why should we orient ourselves in the direction of things that are coming together instead of things that are flying apart? You know, what gives moral valence to doing one thing and not another? It's another way of asking: What's the purpose of any of, of doing anything and, and not and turning in any direction? What breaks the symmetry? You know, otherwise all actions are symmetrical, and by symmetrical I mean essentially equivalent to any other action. If there's a fundamental symmetry breaking in the universe, it's that there is a direction, a telos, somehow embedded in things, and that telos determines the direction, and we see it in in the cosmic record of the coming into being of planets and stars and the emergence of life, unicellular and then multicellular, and then being such, a, such as we. Um, we see a kind of emergence of things, which suggests maybe a, a directionality to things. Again, a directionality which is not in conflict with the, 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 the physical description of things in terms of efficient causes. Then you get to Darwin's theory of natural selection, all of that, which is really looking at, at at the emergence of things in terms of the efficient causes. And you don't see purpose at that level. But when you take a, a, a number of steps back, the, that, that purpose, that directionality kind of slowly comes into focus. But it only comes into focus when you step back far enough and see that there is a direction in the universe and that direction is towards unity and, and towards love. But then also the, the, there's a question. Yeah, Cameron, uh, I would just say that uh, there, there is a di distinction between is there and like an eternal uh, dialectical movement, or is it is it ending? Is it is it like is, is there a final purpose? That's that's one of the questions we. But Cameron, please. Uh... Yeah, I mean, and and I think now we're you know like the the wonderful thing about this conversation is that one thing leads uh, leads to another. But I was just thinking that uh, if we sort of. Uh, maybe go a little bit back. And also I, I would like uh, as an educator to, to see what kind of implications these thoughts would have for, for educational practice. And for instance, how we work at schools. And uh, uh, because one thing that, I mean, this, this whole um, thing about telos or, or, or a purpose seems to be a, an important existential uh, desire or need in human beings. I mean, what if if we don't if we don't experience that there is a purpose for our personal existence, and maybe even that there is a purpose for existence as such, I think we feel sort of um, not rooted. And and um, uh, and I'm, I'm I'm wondering whether 
this is something that is being overlooked in today's education because just giving um, so-called scientific uh, education or, or imparting scientific knowledge does not necessarily lead to this experience of a, of a purpose. And especially given the fact that, that the postmodernistic social thought is very much against uh, this whole notion of uh, mm. being a purpose. Um, and, and I think that uh, we, have, we have driven ourselves into a, uh, into a very strange situation that we're, we're in our, I guess, quest to be scientific and not sort of fool ourselves. We have uh, made life almost unbearable for ourselves or, or mm. impossible to, to function as human beings. And so I think that that um, uh, it it would be important to, to think in what in what ways our educational system, while it teaches us to be critical thinkers, to to think scientifically, to analyze things, also uh, would give us the possibility, as we've been discussing, to to connect these different levels and and through those through that um, uh, analytical perspective also come to that greater holistic view of a purpose and a, and a telos. And I think the other another way I would like to also to frame this is the difference, you see, because I think I think scientific, uh, how would you say, uh, the, the quest for science has first started by human beings being mystified by something, right? I mean, being almost mm -hmm. overwhelmed by something. Then then we have tried to somehow figure out, you know, like, how is this explainable? And, and as we have learned to explain things more and more, I think there's been the danger that we get a feeling that we can put everything under our microscope, so to say. We can mm -hmm. objectify everything and in a way be above everything. And I think one of the beautiful things that I've always appreciated so much in, in Einstein's thinking is that even though he was so intelligent and, 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 and discovered so many uh, important things, but those did not make him feel like reality was somehow under his control, if you see what I mean, or that under his microscope. In, in fact, mm -hmm. it made him feel in a right way, small. And, and, and that's why he talks about this sense of wonder I think our educational system today quite effectively kills that sense of wonder mm -hmm. because it wants to tell us there's actually nothing to really wonder about because everything can be explained by science. And I think that is not true because and, and, and this is where I, I would go back to the music thing. Music can be explained in a certain way, but that explanation never either replaces or uh, makes up for for that sense of wonder, that sense of overwhelming beauty and, and majesty that you experience uh, when you sort of subject yourself to the music. And I think it's it's combining these two things of, of being able to look objectively at things, but at the same time to sense the wonder and yourself become the object of a greater purpose. I think this is something that we need to reach in education. There's a, there's a story in Norwegian school system about uh, about a, a young girl that came to her, her um, teacher with a, a bug or an insect in her hand. And she was like uh, showing the insect to the teacher and really, look, look, look. And the teacher, she of course, used the possibility to explain uh, what kind of insect it was and what kind of, uh, what was the part of the ecological system and everything. And this young girl just said to her, because she hadn't, she hadn't heard anything that she was, the teacher was saying, she was like, it's alive. I can feel it. It's alive in my hand. I think that's a it's a very nice example of what you try to 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 tell uh, Cameron about this that we have to we have to stop uh bringing um all the kids into science at first level 
they they have to uh, learn to feel the mystery of life and reality and nature and music and and of course also poems and 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 then after a while when it, when it, when they start maybe a, a, a secondary school or something then they can start to to think more scientifical about it also but it's so important that we keep both the both way of of having a relation to reality yeah the, the runaway success of the of the scientific method has led us i think in in across subjects far far exceeding the bounds of scientific investigation to um to the to a kind of position in that takes only this scientific analytical approach as being the the correct approach to understanding and the teleological dimension drops out the dimension of wonder of life how do we teach as an example of this how do we teach say history to our children you know is history just a succession of tribes battling boundaries changing one ruler replacing another ruler is it just an endless fight and and then all we what we're doing is just learning and logging the dates and the names and the you know and and the, the toings and froings and movement of peoples and so forth or is there something behind it you know is history trending towards something and I don't want to suggest that we sort of import back into our educational process the, the, the same sorts of dogmatisms that we had before, but is it possible without being dogmatic, without like picking a winning team, so to speak, is it possible to talk about things like history as the emergence of civilization, you know, that we're we're moving towards inexorably whether we like it or not whether we survive it or not we're we're moving towards a global civilization which is going to be far more integrated and far more interconnected even than it is now and now of course it's far more integrated and interconnected than it was a century ago and mm -hmm. if if we if we can give our children the idea that history has a direction how different do you then navigate the world than than if you if you're raised believing that there is no direction to anything? It's all just random causes and effects, really. And the best you can do is carve out, you know, a little island of stability for yourself before entropy takes over. Compare that way of thinking and what kind of people that produces, what kind of incentives do they have to go outside of their own self-interest if we live in a universe that doesn't have any purpose. It's you'll always find people who will generate their own purpose and will somehow, in the face of the the void, will still, you know, stand stand proud and and uh, and and be creative. But I don't know if that's the case for most people. You know, most people need to have the narrative. And I think one of the philosopher who was it who said if if there wasn't a god, we would have to create it. Exactly. There's something really profound about that. We we do need to believe in something greater. Talking about history, I, I think, of course, you could you could you could try to to, to explain this with words. Uh, what you try to say, Stephen? But I think one of the most important thing is to uh, give narratives, historical narratives, to students that they could feel the mystery of what is actually been done in history and, and I, I remember I read uh, Siri Hustvedt the American author Siri Hustvedt I'm not sure because she's a Norwegian and from mm. so so in, in in my opinion her name is Siri Hustvedt but anyway she she wrote about uh, her teacher in seventh grade uh, in Bergen and he was telling the story about Jean d'Arc and this story about Jeanne d'Arc really changed her life. And mm -hmm. she really felt like a purpose and how this young girl, how she was like a feminist symbol. And it's, it's a great story on how historical narratives could really bring something more into our life than what we 
understand by just uh, understand what is the cause of the first world war and what is the result and and the next uh, so i think we should in the same way as we bring the mystery of nature in, uh, into the children's life which we, we could also bring the, the, the historical narratives mm. absolutely and you know that I, I think it's very interesting you see because i think this postmodernistic throwing of the baby out with the backwater of of uh, dogmatism or or uh, uh, sort of uh, absolutism uh, is very it's it's very unscientific because uh, I mean, for instance, everything that we know about human psychology tells us that human beings are psychologically goal oriented. I mean, human behavior can be uh, understood. Uh, basically in terms of what it is we are trying to achieve. Um, and uh, we can see that when, when you take that kind of a higher purpose away from people, people don't live without a purpose. Their purpose just becomes something uh, extremely banal, like you know, living to become rich or living to have maximum pleasure or whatever. So um, I, I think that... Uh, we cannot really live without a purpose. The, the question is, you know, whether our purpose is really meaningful and truly human or it is a, a uh, meaningless purpose that, uh, that replaces that, that true purpose. So in that sense, I think, yes, education should, I think one of the most important aspects of education is that it should help us to see purpose both in the universe in history, in our own existence, I think to be human is the same as to be purposeful. I think that's that's very nice, Cameron. I, I used to I used to say that goalless life has also a meaning, but, <laughs> but maybe I have to change it <laughs> because what you say is that the, there might be a goal behind all the goalless uh, life also that has meaning. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, maybe we should stop there. Uh, is there anything more or should we... I know we, 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 we might have gone back to Ibn Rush and how he explained uh, why hate and evil are on a part mm -hmm. of, uh, of uh, the divine of of God, but maybe we should stop and then we could bring it back into the discussion sometimes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Athens and Jerusalem, created by Cameron Namdar, Stephen Phelps, and Knut Ovese. Nora Julis with technical support. Music is pieces of Edvard Grieg's Morning Mood. The voices in the intro are. Victor Frankel, interview with Robert Oppenheimer and Pope John Paul II. Thank you for listening and please check out another episode.